Welcome everyone to the LSE and to this online event, Civil Society Under Threat, Authoritarianism, COVID-19 and more. My name is Jude Howell. I'm from the Department of International Development. I have worked extensively on civil society over many years in relation to aid, development and counterterrorism. I'm very pleased today to welcome our three panelists, Dr. Nicola McBean, who is Director of Rights Practice UK, a charity which um, supports people working on human rights, and her uh, regional specialization is on China, where she has lived for many years and carried out re research on civil society and human rights. She was a former director of the Great Britain China Center. So uh, welcome, Nicola. Uh, our second speaker is Maris Tadros from the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Uh, Maris works extensively on uh, politics and development, particularly in relation to the Middle East and Egypt. She has published numerous books on Egypt, and um, she is at the moment director of the DFID-funded Coalition for Regional uh, Religious Equality and Inclusive Development. Um, welcome also to our third speaker, Sergei Lyubovnikov from University of Sheffield. And um, he has done a considerable amount of work on civil society, third sector, NGOs, and his specialization is on the post-Soviet context, and in particular, the Russia Federation. So you can see we have a wealth of expertise here and um, in a wide span of um, experience, which is going to feed into the panel presentations and discussions, I hope. So for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Civil Society. I should let you know that the event is going to be recorded and as long as there are no technical difficulties, it will hopefully become a podcast, which will be available in, in several days. Well, you, the audience, we're delighted you're here today and you will have a chance to ask questions. Each, each speaker will have around 15 minutes for their presentation. So about 45 minutes later, we will open it up to the audience. If you would like to submit a question, please look for the Q&A icon at the bottom of the screen. Please type in your question and I will try to pose as many questions as I can during the time available uh, to the speakers. Uh, when you do ask a question, please, please remember to give your name and affiliation. So I think we should um, charge ahead with the panel uh, debate. And let me first hand over then to Nicola McBean from Rights Practice UK. Thank you very much indeed, Jude. And um, thank you very much indeed also for this invitation um, to, to join uh, join this panel this afternoon. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to um, say a few words about the situation of civil society in, in China. Um, and I'm making these remarks about civil society in China against a backdrop of concern at the so-called shrinking or closing space um, for civil society that's taking place um, around the world. And in fact, some people when they when I've been we've talked about China have um, spoken to me about the idea of China, the space in China actually having already been closed. Um, I think I'm slightly more positive than that. But before I um, talk about um, the situation today, I just want to make a few comments on the sort of kind of 
historic context uh, for civil society in China. Um, ch the Chinese, um, the, the environment for civil society in China is obviously um, dominated completely by domestic political priorities. I think there's also um, an interesting international dimension and something we may come back to later in, in, in discussion. So the situation for um, Chinese civil society is above all a question of the relationship between the state and the individual and the space that ordinary citizens enjoy to meet, to have a voice, to organize, to play a role, in fact, in public life. So when we look at China, there is a fault line, I would say, between what we might call unofficial China and the official China, um, between Tijiwai and Tijinay. In other words, between those who are located outside the system and those who are located inside the system. And when we look at organizations in China that describe themselves as civil society groups or NGOs, we see a broad spectrum of organizations that can be distinguished by the closeness of their relationships with the state. So these can range from the government organized NGOs, the gongos, which have been set up by government departments, to grassroots groups which are supporting local communities. And grassroots groups themselves may be distinguished by the kinds of connections and therefore the support that they enjoy with local officials. The CSOs, like anywhere else in the world, are also distinguished by their mission. Are they primarily service-oriented or do they try to um, engage us in advocacy? And here too, there's a wide range of uh, ways of working from organizations that are delivering welfare services on behalf of the state to groups that try to provide legal assistance, which is a much more contested area for NGOs in China. Groups that are advising and trying to provide assistance, for example, for migrant workers on labor rights or assisting those facing discrimination on grounds of disability or gender. So in the reform period after the end of the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese authorities were much more open to the emergence of a civic space. And we saw public debate and the arts enjoying some, um, some new opportunities. There was a flourishing um, um, of cultural life, really, in China in, in, in that period of the 80s. And there was also support um, for international engagement, which brought new ideas and approaches and opportunities for international travel. But after the demonstrations in Tiananmen Square in 1989, there was a crackdown and international engagement was largely suspended. The decision by the United Nations to hold the World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995 provided a new impetus to civil society and many women's groups and leaders emerged at this time. Best known for many of us is uh, the lawyer Guo Jianmei. Looking back though, from where we are now, that decade from 1995 was perhaps almost a golden era for independent, progressive and influential civil society groups. Among the uh, other groups and leaders to emerge during this period was Gongmang, known as the Open Constitution Initiative and led by another lawyer, Xu Jiyong. 
Gungmung and the lawyers who were associated with these groups pioneered a strategy of what they called rights defense, in which they appealed to China's growing legal framework in order to protect citizens' rights. And this relatively benign environment for Chinese civil society came to an end really in the mid 2000s, I'd suggest, following the so-called color revolutions that were taking place elsewhere. So the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004 led to um, Chinese domestic security um, services reassessing the role of NGOs, both foreign and domestic, um, in China. And this was this this immediately really led to a more hostile environment and suspicion of um, particularly of foreign engagement um, with, with NGOs. Um, domestically in China, though, we also saw the authorities placing a, a new emphasis on what they call stability maintenance. And the idea of a harmonious society was promoted in which there was little tolerance for contention in public life. Um, this came to a head really in 2013 with an internal Chinese Communist Party document, which became, which was known as document number nine. Um, this document was leaked and uh, revealed the party's um, hostility towards the values of liberal democracies. And they sing the document singled out in particular the ideas of civil society and universal values for criticism. And it's certainly for us who sort of as observers, it's been very much downhill since then. In 2015, the government introduced a charity law and the following year, the overseas NGO management law. And these laws were introduced at the same time as a suite of new legislation to, to protect national security. The overseas NGO management law introduced registration requirements for foreign NGOs that were wanting to operate in China, and made the police the gatekeepers for this registration process. Um, very few um, uh, China, um, overseas NGOs um, that are working in the area of um, sort of law or human rights have, um, have been able to register. 2015 also saw the crackdown on human rights lawyers, um, with many being imprisoned and, and, and then sub on release, um, we learned of the, the torture that they'd um, suffered. And this crackdown signaled that the authorities, I think, patience um, with the sort of activism of, of uh, a number of lawyers had really run out. So the law, these laws that were being introduced then in sort of 2015, 16, and the and the new and a kind of new security rhetoric have also had an impact on, on the resources available to um, CSOs in China, notably in, in, in the availability of funding, both domestically and, and from international sources. New regulatory requirements have also made these groups that 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 exist in China much more cautious. Um, for many advocacy groups that, that weren't able to obtain official um, approval to, to register as not-for-profit organizations, had registered as companies and were able to um, raise some funds um, um, through that status 
this then this now became impossible. So um, this, together with new um, strictures in the charity law, which made um, online and sort of crowdfunding um, largely illegal, um, made it very difficult um, for for groups in China um, to secure the sort of level of funding they'd previously been enjoying. And those groups that had got official status as not-for-profit organizations, um, you know, realizes there's a sort of new environment. They had to be extremely careful of what they what they were doing. And there was a new emphasis on having to get in approval for all the activities that uh, they wanted to take place. This whole idea of getting activity approved activities approved applies both to domestic and also to those international organizations that are registered in China. So where are we now? Um, there is really a very small space for civil society groups um, that are completely independent and unregistered. Um, the activists in these groups, um, they try to avoid attracting the attention of the authorities, especially the police. The police, meanwhile, keep a wary eye on known activists and will periodically invite them in for tea. This is a, a euphemism for being asked to report to the police, with the police perhaps warning um, activists to um, moderate uh, their what they're saying or what they're doing, and the police also using it as an opportunity to find out about the activism and what other activists are doing. And where are some of the pathbreakers now? Guojian Mei's organization on, for women's rights was forced out of Peking University and has had to, to really um, restrict a lot of what it's able to do. And Xu Jiyong is once again in detention and he's facing his second um, stint in prison on charges of inciting subversion of state power. There are still some small groups engaging on rights issues, everything from labor rights, women's rights, LGBT, the death penalty, the environment, disability um, rights, and so on. The more politically sensitive the topic, however, the more careful these groups have to be about their activities. The nationwide networking, which many groups were um, engaging in, um, has become extremely difficult as um, the uh, travel is monitored by the police. And of course, this has only become easier in a way for the police um, with new COVID-related um, sort of surveillance um, of, um, measures. The kind of street protests, including what was called sort of performance art, which uh, some of the women activists uh, made famous, um, is now pretty much impossible. Censorship of the internet, I think goes without saying, has, has limited the impact of, of, of sharing information in China. And the critical conversations that take place are doing so largely within private WeChat groups rather than on the public blogs um, which were, were, were much which were favored early on. So in this hostile climate, we can though see that civil society activists um, remain creative in the kind of strategies that, that they're pursuing. And I'd say one area where there is some space is what they call self-advocacy, where 
experienced activists have been able to inform and empower those who are directly impacted by discriminatory policies or other violations and, 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 and support them in speaking out. Um, this kind of self-advocacy um, seems to be much more problematic in, in, for the authorities to, to close down. Um, and, and then there have been some small successes, um, and I think it's it, it, in this area. Effective advocates are also using the government's own rhetoric and laws to legitimise their demands. So China's public commitment to the UN's sustainable development goals and the promise of, quote, leaving no one behind has been used by disabled persons advocates to press for greater inclusion. But the legitimizing effect of government policy has its limits. And we clearly saw this um, earlier this year in the treatment of citizen journalists who attempted independent investigations into the impact of the coronavirus in Wuhan. So journalist Chen Qiushe disappeared soon after many of the sort of his, his video blogs, and he's now believed to be in detention facing charges, um, probably of states, some kind of incitement of state subversion. And there's, there's the limits on what on how far you can use, of course, um, Chinese um, China's own policies um, are really um, it's you know it's, there's, there's a, are absolutely clear um, these limits when we look at when we think about the situation in Xinjiang, where it is impossible for even the most dedicated human rights lawyer or advocacy group in China, groups which may have in the past taken on issues um, even defending Tibetan um, Tibetan advocates activists or Falun Gong practitioners, but this, the issue of what's happening in Xinjiang is totally off limits um, and it's impossible um, for these um, brave um, sort of activists to challenge the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So in Xi Jinping's China, the party rules over everything and social stability is paramount. I would argue, I would just conclude by saying that I think CSOs, um, the Chinese civil society organizations in China, some are able to undertake meaningful work within these constraints. They have adapted the ways they work and the way they frame the work that they do. For some groups, I think that have an eye to the future and are pinning their hopes on a new period of relaxation. This is a strategy for survival in a very inhospitable environment. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicola. That was very comprehensive and, and a very insightful and has given us such a up-to-date um, overview of the situation nowadays in China of civil society and what is possible and what is really not possible at all and how NGOs try to maneuver within, within that shrinking space that's available. Um, I would like now to hand over to Marise who's going to talk about uh, Egypt and the Middle East and a civil society under threat. Thank you. Thank you, George, and thank you for everyone um, for joining us today, and thank you for LSE for inviting me. Um, it is going to be a bit of a challenge to talk about the Middle East in the light of its diversity, but I'd like to pick up on a really important point that Nicola raised, 
which is the circumscribing of space for freedom of expression. Because I believe this is the most challenging in the sense that around the world, um, not just in the global south, but in the west as well, we have seen in the name of fighting COVID-19, um, a severe restriction of people's freedom to express what is going on, um, to report on it. And I think that um, for me is extremely critical for the Middle East because unless there is freedom of expression, we don't know basic questions such as how are medical staff coping with crises? Um, how are the most marginalized coping with day-to-day -day life? Just basic questions that we need to be able to answer Without that press freedom, um, we aren't able to uh, speak freely with civil society organizations, movements, or initiatives, because again, there are restrictions, uh, the media censors. And what we have seen in the Middle East um, against the backdrop of COVID-19, and um, I just want to sort of emphasize a point that Nicola alluded to, which is that whether we're talking about China or uh, many parts of the Middle East or many parts of Europe um, or whichever part, we talk about pre-existing conditions of encroaching on spaces, pre-existing um, political configurations that have sought to circumscribe space in many ways. What COVID-19 did was give, I believe, governments, um, just to borrow a term from uh, Noel Malcolm, um, useful enemies. Um, the idea that we will use COVID as a useful enemy, um, as, a, as, a, as a useful enemy to say, because we have this COVID-19, well, we have to take the following measures. And what we have seen in many parts of the Middle East, United Arab Emirates, um, Tunisia, um, uh, Egypt, and also there was an attempt in Morocco, but uh, civil society blocked it, is a circumscribing of what people are able to report um, uh, circumscribing of what people are able um, um, to share publicly in the name of fight, uh, that this would counter efforts to fight COVID-19. My concern for the Middle East generally is that with COVID-19 serving as um, a pretext, that governments will start to create all kinds of useful enemies against the backdrop of COVID-19. Um, the reason why um, I'm concerned about this is because um, we know historically that at times of extreme panic and extreme fear, people look to um, uh, groups that are um, vilified or stigmatized um, as a pretext for saying, well, they are to blame. We saw this at the time when um, the Middle Ages, the Jews were blamed for the plague and there were massive pogroms. Um, and we see this today with um, attempts at finding scapegoats uh, for COVID-19 in Pakistan, which I know is outside the Middle East, but Pakistan, we saw, for example, the Hazara Shias being um, blamed for bringing um, COVID-19 to Pakistan via Iran. And then there was a circulation of talk of the Shia virus. That's what COVID-19 began to be called. Um, my concern for the future is that if the effects of COVID-19 continue, that governments and non-state actors with authoritarian streaks will find all kinds of um, uh, excuses uh, to uh, and, uh, and actors to, call, to, to treat them as useful enemies. And I think that is the first point of concern. The second point of concern is um, the impact under 
COVID-19 in a context of authoritarianism, of extreme divisiveness emerging in civil society. Again, this was always the case. We never had a cohesive civil society. Civil society always had all kinds of civil and uncivil, all kinds of agendas, all kinds of actors, um, and it's always been pluralistic since the dawn of history. But we saw, for example, um, the, the case of um, in Iraq um, and Egypt and Israel, where in Iraq you saw the supporters of Muqtada Sadr, who were leasing, physically creating, you know, sort of uh, protests, demonstrations, um, uh, with the rubric that they are defending their right to worship, defending their right to visit religious places of worship. Now, whether you agree with them or not, the fact is this constitutes civic action. The fact is this is a mobilization of people. And this is why we're problematizing always, who do we mean by civil society? What do we mean by mobilization? Um, because in parallel, you did have people who are saying, you are putting our lives at risk. Uh, you are misinterpreting religion. You are able to worship at home. And these were often um, supporters of Sistani and others. And they were saying, actually, there's nothing in Islam that requires you to go there. And the sanctity of life comes before everything else. But interestingly, they were mobilizing online because they didn't want to go onto the streets because they wanted to observe the idea of respecting the, the concerns for uh, the, the infection associated with the virus. So you had the, a division in civil society, I mean, not a bit, you had two expressions of civil society activism, one on the streets in large numbers, fighting against decisions to, to uh, lock down and to prevent people from going to places of worship. And then you had other forms of civic expressions, um, talking about don't put our lives at risk, uh, don't use religion, don't weaponize religion, um, for your own political ends, but they were expressing their voices online, which isn't always as embodied, if you like, as those on the streets. And the same thing you, ha you saw happening in Egypt, where the Coptic Orthodox uh, patriarch and, and the Coptic Orthodox are the largest, well, the largest religious minority in the Middle East. Um, they constitute about 10% of Egypt's population. They're about... Um, eight to nine million. Um, and um, uh, the, the Pope comes out and says, well, uh, we are going to have to shut the churches. And you have these uh, civic organizations of Copts forming, getting together in churches and saying, no, we won't. We won't close the churches. We are go you are um, not representing us. You don't have the right to tell us not to worship. And actively uh, seeking to delegitimize um, what he's saying. And the same thing happening again in Israel with ultra-Orthodox, not, not to generalize, but some ultra-Orthodox groups, again, convening, congregating, and saying we are exercising our civic right to um, um, challenge um, um, you know, any restrictions on our freedom of religion. And what I'm saying is it is very complicated because what COVID-19 has done is it has created the conditions for uh, people to politicize um, and to build populist basis um, for causes that uh, one would not necessarily associate with the kind of causes that civil society or progressive dimensions of civil society, as we had historically conceptualized them, um, engaged in. And, and um, it just makes it a lot more complicated. Um, the third um, element which I would like to talk 
about very briefly is the Middle East is the context of a number of humanitarian disasters. And I know someone will say, uh, oh, you're exaggerating it. We're not. We're talking here about a famine in, in, in Yemen. We're talking about Lebanon uh, facing exceptional um, political, economic, and social constraints. We're talking about Libya in a state of, uh, well, there is, there is no, um, it, it's a state of, of lawlessness. It's a state of, of, of absence of rule of law, of, of absence of a state. The same thing um, with the state of Syria, where people's economic suffering um, is, is unparalleled for a context, for a country that had economic self-sufficiency historically. Um, and in that context of various humanitarian crises, and they all tend to ripple over. So you have a, a great deal of circulation of movement of arms, of, of, uh, of jihadis and so forth across the region, as well as an economic disaster. And may I add, a complete sense of disillusion with the West um, and the policies of the West in the region. I mean, the policies on asylum and refugees. Um, just to remind you, Professor Dawn Chatty of the University of Oxford showed that at the time when there was massive crisis with the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire, but crisis also in Europe, Syria was receiving refugees from across Europe and across the Middle East, and everybody was welcome. And, you know, and now when we look at asylum policies, refugee policies, uh, this idea of a West that is in favor of human rights, a West that um, recognizes human suffering, a West that is uh, committed to um, um, understanding people's suffering is in serious, serious, um, uh, is, is seriously being challenged or contested. And so my third issue under this is, my concern is what will it mean for the future of the social contract. If you recall, what we've seen in the social contract is, and a, 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 historically what we've seen around the world is, uh, the social contract has been eroding more and more. Um, less and less rights for citizens under a social contract. And I think in the Middle East, where in the 1950s with, with the nation building exercise, um, you had this, um, uh, this social contract where in return for people being denied certain political rights of expression, you had a modicum of economic rights in the form of a welfare state and a modicum of social rights in the form of some civil rights in many nation building exercises, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and so forth. Um, what I'm concerned about is if we see a prolongation of the crises associated with COVID-19 and the ripple effects of humanitarian crises across the region, um, that that social contract will become one where citizens are even prepared to forfeit not just their political rights, but their any kinds of rights in um, in return for just basic rule of law, just basic public safety. In other words, in return for the ability to go to work without being kidnapped by militias, in return for the ability to go to school without fear of gangs and groups um, coming in the way. And uh, it, that is what concerns me for the future is the, the, those kind of ripple effects of instability will reach a point where um, we don't, we, 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 are, we are just, people are just seeking to hold on to just any kind of public safety so that they can go about 
any kind of livelihoods. And that is very scary because that would mean that we have, we are increasingly um, diminishing what we mean by citizen agency and the spaces and ways in which they can um, exercise those. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. It's, it has been, um, I wish I had, I think on a, on a more, I'll, I'll, I'll end with, I'm trying to find a positive note to end with. Um, I think on a positive note, um, we have seen two things. Um, we have seen civil society initiatives, um, both faith-based and non-faith-based, engage in the most organized, very, very um, um, on the spot, but very organized and very effective um, attempts at providing um, support for people who are marginalized. And that has been across the region. And it has been quite um, astounding how um, expressions of so social solidarity that, that people have seen. Um, I think that is a positive note, but I think um, um, the other positive note is that people have sought ingenuous ways of supporting um, hospitals and other institutions that are, are struggling. Um, and and, and they've, they've, they've sought to do this to the best of their ability. Um, but again, the, the, the broader regional and global context, I think we can't ignore. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Maurice. I think you've drawn our attention to um, a much wider context around these uh, questions as well, which draw upon historical and social um, conditions and also um, immediate sort of global changes such as uh, the COVID-19 and the implications of that for um, refugees, for humanitarianism, for political and civil rights, and um, and indeed for the social contract and, and what this all means for how um, easily or seemingly easily it seems to be that citizens are prepared to rescind some of these rights, civil and political rights, for the sake of uh, security, of feeling of public safety, which in itself could of course, can of course be used by governments, as is often the case in China as well. Stability and security are often used to justify um, a degree of uh, compression of civil society. On that note, I'd like now to hand over to our last speaker, Sergei, on, who is going to talk about this issue in the context of uh, post-Soviet world and Russia Federation. Thank you. Thank you, Jude. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, talk on uh, what is quite a complex issue. Um, and listening to Nicola and Maurice, I uh, could see some parallels already emerging particularly in terms of some of the legislative development in the post-Soviet context and specifically looking at Russia, but also in terms of some of the wider issues that, uh, um, we, that you know, are being raised by COVID-19 and, and kind of the response of different states in different ways. Um, and in a way, is interesting to think about um, civil society and kind of civil society under threat and COVID-19 authoritarianism um, at this point. But some of these kind of developments and what we're seeing in a way being amplified by COVID-19 in areas such as Egypt, but also in, 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 in the Russian Federation, for example, are really accumulate, uh, 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 coming together of trends that have emerged for a long, long time. And um, 
the way I want to kind of talk about this is to think about it um, uh, about civil society as a as a space, and and I think um, um, <clears throat> the European Foundations uh, report uh, characterizes that very nicely as a kind of shrinking space, um, and in a way that a shrinking space for civil society is quite often highlighted of being present in an authoritarian context and associated with authoritarian regimes, you know, China, Russia, uh, or uh, pseudo-authoritarian regime like Hungary. Um, but it's not necessarily only the case that that occurs in that those contexts. And if you look at developments in both the US, the UK, across uh, Western Europe, you can see that there are some, in a way, copycats in terms of shrinking the space of civil society in those contexts as well. Um, and quite often, they tend to uh, be replicated, I think, in terms of their approaches. You know, there's a general reduction in resources, there's changes in regulation. Um, so I think by looking at contexts such as China, Russia, um, uh, the Middle East, um, um, and uh, again, uh, we're kind of uh, brushing a, a big area here with, with the same homogeneous brush. But I think by looking at these contexts in more detail, what we can, we can, can draw a couple of lessons and, and, and they provide us with some insights about one, how the state can use specific tools to shrink the space for civil society and how they do that effectively. Um, two, how to some extent NPOs are actually responding to these changes, you know, um, how pragmatic they might be, how innovative they might be in circumventing uh, some of this shrinking space. And really three in terms of if we're looking from our kind of Western perspective and thinking about these developments affecting civil society in our context, it might give us a bit of an insight in terms of how civil society might look or change in the future in our kind of shrinking spaces. But having said that, uh, every authoritarian context always needs some sort of a outlay where citizens can raise their grievances and ideally obviously that outlay remains under control so if if we look at uh, see i'm studying kind of the russian context i'm uh, uh, more familiar with some of the issues uh, during the soviet period if you're looking at the soviet period the soviet in itself being a totalitarian state one would assume there wasn't any outlay for citizen grievances but there were outlets such as the environmental movement that was tolerated by uh, uh, by the Communist Party, which provided the ability for, in particular, the more intelligentsia, i.e., the the kind of the um, well-educated classes to mobilise. There were um, small-scale kind of informal mobilisations around kitchen tables and that sort of thing. So, um, a, an authoritarian state really only. Um, to some extent can survive in the longer term if there are abilities for the grievances to kind of being raised and managed by the states. I think if they start to spill over, then we see things such as, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the Arab Spring and, and other kind of um, spillovers. So what I uh, want to do is, is kind of have a look at my work and, and at the Russian context specifically. Um, and in a way, I probably approach that slightly different um, to the, to Nicola, um, and um, also probably very different to Marius, uh, because I'm looking from it more from kind of from the organizational perspective. So I'm looking at it more at the micro level of what do individual organizations do. Um, and to some extent, that might provide a bit of an insight of what I, uh, is 
whether or not nonprofits can actually activate some of the citizens. It's all good to kind of talk about civil society and it being their space for them to be active. If these are, if these organizations that inhabit those space don't actually try to activate the citizens, then um, it, it, um, the whole idea of kind of mobilization becomes very difficult. And you might be wondering why Russia might be a good area to have a look at it. For one thing, it's one of the um, the grey countries on the Civicus um, civil society map, I uh, highlighted as having a repressed civil society context. It also one of the sort of political regimes of a hybrid nature. So where you have democratic practices, so people go to elections, at least kind of at the formal level, but also authoritarian tendencies where, you know, these are elections are slightly you know, rigged in the incumbent's favour um, to some extent. Um, uh, and if you look at how, how regimes and how political systems are spread across the world, then um, if we just think about the economy, economist intelligence units, for example, assessment of the de democracy index, and what we find is that more countries are probably similar in terms of their political setup to Russia um, than they are to the UK or, or Western Europe. So in a way, understanding how civil society operates in, in the post-Soviet context, such as Russia or Ukraine, gives us probably a better idea of understanding how non-profits and, uh, operate in the majority uh, of political context. Russia also, interestingly, compared to some other contexts, is, that, is really a, an area where people would argue that civil society is very young. You know, it existed for about uh, 30 years, basically since the collapse of the Soviet Union, as, as this sort of independent idea, as an independent uh, uh, space. Um, and given that, um, there, it has seen quite a strong growth in, in what we informal organization, registered organization. And depending on who you read, they tend to seem to fluctuate somewhere between 200,000 and 250,000 across Russia. And Russia is, is quite a big country. So um, um, even though it's probably not necessarily the most populous in terms of you know, per, per capita density, but you can see that if you start to break that down, there won't be that many organizations um, for uh, uh, at, at various regional levels in, in various um, uh, contexts, in particular, if we're assuming that probably a lot of these organizations will be concentrated in urban areas. Um, so there's still quite a long way to go in, for nonprofits generally as in terms of expanding, but whether or not there be kind of the rights-based organizations or the welfare-based organizations, I've, I'll uh, have a think and talk about these um, in, in the Russian context in the in a little bit as well. Um, in general, in the past, um, kind of the research suggested that nonprofits in Russia um, are very weak. So if we discount any kind of repression by the state, um, the organization in itself were kind of assessed as being organizational weak and they failed and kind of failure to establish themselves as a societal force. Some of that had to do with how the 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 the, uh, the, the sector developed early on in terms of its funding. A lot of that came from overseas. There wasn't really any resources available within the, during the 1990s for um, yeah, uh, what the Russians might have considered in, in that kind of economic depression as a, as a, as a luxury engagement. Um, but in particular, more recent research coming out also um, based from researchers that are based in Russia and, and, and kind of from sociology departments in Russia, um, they seem to indicate that there's really an emerging dynamism 
at, at least at the organizational level, despite these sort of legislative forces that are shrinking the space for nonprofits. And I think that's quite interesting to consider. So obviously, on the one hand, we have states in you know, China, Egypt, and so on, that are really proactively trying to shrink the space for nonprofits. But at the other hand, if we're looking at Russia, where we have similar developments, we're also seeing that nonprofits are actually quite dynamic and um, trying to deal with these sort of changes. So what I wanted to do in a, in a way, and this is where a lot of my, uh, some of the observation in terms of parallel, in particular to what Nicholas said about China, uh, um, um, will hopefully be highlighted, is uh, some of the kind of legislative uh, developments um, in the Russian context. Um, so from the perspective of the state, um, or the state's argument for Shrinking the space for nonprofits has always been around trying to improve the professionalization of nonprofits, um, trying to improve the limited domestic support available for nonprofits by making them more accountable um, to uh, nobody quite knows who, um, but all and by trying to kind of reduce the outside influence and and that a lot of that uh, comes from what Nicola already mentioned. Had, uh, uh, with regards to the colored revolutions that that uh, that swept across um, the um, <clears throat> the post communist context and in particular in the neighborhood in in the Russian neighborhood and some colored revolutions seem to have led to some sort of political change others like the initial uh, revolution in the Ukraine didn't really change much initially. Um, Quite a lot of these um, changes weren't really that straightforward, and they in they did improve profession the, the professionalism of organisations, and they did improve the provision of domestic support. Most of it coming from the state, um, but as such, that's nothing really new. If we're looking at how nonprofits are supported in other contexts, in the US and the UK, um, and uh, um, the for example, the John Hopkins nonprofit project highlights that a lot of those receive the majority of resources from from state from state actors as well so in in that sense it's not really that different what is different is that a lot of these legislative developments have effectively or proactively limited the types of activities that nonprofits can really engage in so um they don't explicitly outline you can't do this but by changing registration status, by labeling organizations in a specific way through the legal system, it effectively prevents them engaging in specific activities should they wish to be able to engage with either the state in terms of being able to hold them to account or uh, forcing some sort of dialogue or be able to receive any sort of uh, um, so, uh, donations or support from, from other uh, sources. Um, and then similar to China, there is an extensive um, um, <clears throat> framework around revenues con revenue controls, uh, accountability, uh, registration requirements. Um, I think several organizations had to re-register several times over the last couple of years. But um, as some of the research um, um, by myself and by others, uh, such as Moser and Skripenchuk, um, highlight is that the difficulty really isn't the regulation itself. Organizations seem to be fairly pragmatic and fairly adaptive in responding and taking that kind of on board and adjusting and adapting what they're doing and changing the narrative, similar to what Nicola has highlighted in, in, uh, in China, yeah? changing the narrative from 
um, in a way, what we would uh, what Moser highlights as Russifying what they're doing. Yeah? So uh, um, now, instead of being ac advocacy for human rights, it's now some sort of Russian take on 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 that, but effectively doing very similar activity just under a different label. Um, the main difficulty for organizations is really the frequency of change. So Russia, that rather than kind of re explicitly restricting it, just keeps changing regulation all the time. So um, uh, Yulia Skolkova, for example, based at the HSE Moscow, observed that since 2006, uh, different laws pertaining to what MPOs can do has been changed nearly 80 times, which for even organizations in a UK context will be very difficult to keep up, given that we're talking about quite often volunteer-run organizations without any kind of recourse to sort of legal guidance on how to change and what to do. So I think that is probably more of an issue, and, and particularly an issue for the ability to kind of um, be seen as a legitimate actor within uh, Russian society and societal development. And then the other problem that comes from that is that even if you tick all the boxes and you are technically registered and you effectively adhere to all those regulations, you can still be on the wrong side of the law without really any legal recourse. But uh, uh, again, I assume that um, there might be some similarities to the Chinese context there as well. Um, and a lot of this drive from the, from in terms of legislative development has been around grouping or subdividing NGOs and really splintering civil society in what is what the state would co consider organizations that, that which are good and useful, which serve and help them legitimize uh, itself as a regime, and those that are not good. And some of these organizations, and that's, this is where I see some similarity to the observations across the Middle East, are aren't really um, what we would call liberal or civil or what um, you know, um, we would be observing as civil society actors um, within the UK context. And I like the term uh, that um, uh, Maurice used as uncivil kind of civil society. You know, these are uh, 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 more right-wing types organizations or nationalistic organizations which are serving a specific purpose. And what is interesting, and I'm not sure how that might be in the other context, um, Russia has been very effective at using public discourse, the media, to kind of support that agenda of subdividing and fragmenting and vilifying parts of some nonprofit organizations and promoting other nonprofit organizations. Um, and also, there has been some supportive legislation. So it wasn't, in a way, in Russia just about shrinking the space for nonprofit. It was also in that process opening up other spaces for nonprofits to engage in, specifically around welfare provision. So Russia in the 1990s has seen a very dramatic uh, decrease in government. Um, or in the government's ability to provide basic services, a lot of the things that people rely, healthcare and so on, um, it effectively withdrew from it. So it, in a way, started to mobilize MPOs in providing that as, as, uh, uh, as part of that kind of shrinking space, and in a way, maybe shifting the space of MPO activity from the political to kind of the social and the welfare provision. Um, 
So a lot of the, as a, if you kind of summarize these sort of legislative development in Russia, most of them have tried to limit the rights-based types organization, human rights, LGBT, women's rights. Um, and even more recently, the environmental movement, which for a long, long period, ha because of its role it's played in the Soviet Union, in overturning of the Soviet Union, has in a way enjoyed uh, what, what in the 1990s was referred to as kind of a corner of freedom, has seen a, um, a, a, a restriction on its ability, in particular organizations that work across Russia is slightly different at the regional level. So what you can see is the sort of kind of splintering in, in, in that the regions see slight and non-profit organizations in the regions seem to experience a different um, fate than those that work nationally. Um, I know I'm, I'm kind of coming towards the end um, of my 15 minutes. Um, but so in Russia, I think what we're observing is to some extent a shrinking space, but we're also seeing or where we could be seeing shifting spaces. Um, and um, it, from my impression of Russian nonprofits and those in other post-Soviet contexts, they've been very good at reframing themselves from what, what could be seen as, as large P politics, i.e. holding the state to, to account, engaging in advocacy, to being in much more um, into maybe small politics, i.e. using informal indirect relation, informal engagements, trying to effectively instigate change from within, trying to change specific practices of how health professionals engage with people that are diagnosed with HIV and through that kind of changing potential policy because they have probably figured out that it's no point trying to change policy from the top. Um, so if I Bring that to my kind of set out where I said we'll look at, you know, there are things that we can learn from the context in terms of the tools. Um, there seem to be se se several um, similarities of how legislative tools are used to shrink the space. Um, Nonprofits seem to have been very pragmatic in terms of respondents and how Nicola indicated that and Maris also, they in those contexts, they seem to have been also fairly innovative to some extent in responding to the shrinking space. So maybe we're seeing more of a shifting space and you know, nonprofits seem to play the long game in these contexts. Is this something useful for nonprofits in a UK context to understand as well? Um, that kind of brings my points together. Um, I didn't really get to COVID, but I'm sure we'll have a discussion about that as well. Great, thank you very so much, Sergei, and for um, enlightening us about the situation in Russia and the legislative um, uh, changes there and what is possible for NPOs and the government's interest in um, welfare reform in, in Russia, which is also the case um, in China as well, and creating some spaces there for for NGOs. And thank you also for raising the issue of we have to be aware too of shrinking civil societies in the USA and the UK as well, that it's not just a phenomenon phenomenon of um, COVID or of um, authoritarianism. Right, I would now like to open this up to the audience and who've been listening very patiently and um, raise some of the questions they have. Please do, if you have a question, use the uh, chat, the uh, question and answer function at the bottom of the screen and please do give your name and affiliation. So I, I or we already have a couple of questions actually so I'm going to start um, with these um, 
And the first one I have here is uh, from um, Ibrahim Pan, uh, from, uh, who now works at the Green Climate Fund in Korea. I am now Nigerian, and I wonder whether you have any thoughts on the ongoing end SARS protests. Any thoughts on how the leaderless structure of the broad coalition of protesters has impacted the success of these protests? So who would, um, Nicola, Maurice, you look, can you raise your hand who, would, who can, right, Maurice, do you want to go ahead? Just to say, yes, it's, it, is a, um, it is unfortunate that one of the protesters just has, has just been killed actually in, 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 in this context where people are um, fighting against police corruption and police brutality. Um, and the idea of leaderless is very interesting because what we have seen, especially um, in the last 20 years, is across the globe, a lot of um, people coalescing and acting collectively that defy the conventional ways in which we think about how people mobilize. And the strength of these actions are um, when they seem leaderless and when they seem less organized, for example, um, a comparator would be a trade union, which is super organized, very clear leadership structure, but is very easy for the government to crack down on. And in a context of Nigeria where the government will crack down on you, I think the idea of these spontaneous, or they seem spontaneous, but obviously people have often had pre-existing um, contributions and actions in, 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 in accountability, is that because they seem um, very large base and they coalesce very quickly, it becomes a lot more difficult for the government to crack down on them. And of course, in Nigeria, you have the, the previous model, um, Bring Back Our Girls, which called for accountability for the government failure in bringing back the girls that were um, captured and abducted by the Boko Haram. And I think in all of these cases, and this is just my interpretation, and I could be completely wrong, but what we've seen with Bring Back Our Girls and with NSARS is their strength is they use uh, an issue that everybody can relate to and they mobilize exclusively on this issue and they don't try to present it in partisan terms. So it's not uh, Muslim and Christian, it's versus Christian, it's not this kind, it, it is around an issue. It's a bit like bringing back our girls when the mobilization was not for bringing back the Christian girls, even though the majority were Christian, but it was a broad-based movement that says we're focusing on this issue. And the strength of this issue, NSARS, is the way in which they press for accountability, the way in which they are very clear about what they're demanding and um, why they are organizing. And I say, and, and I just say that for me, just one word, why they're successful, it's because, because of their seeming leaderlessness, um, it is more difficult for the government to, uh, to crack down on them. And this is what we've seen across in the last 20 years. Just thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there, sorry. Um, Nicola, do you want to come in? No. Okay. Let me move on then to the um, a next question from Ingum Brandvold uh, from Norwegian Church Aid. And this is an interesting question. To what extent do you see government authorities around the world copying civil society legislation from more authoritarian but influential states? And I think this would apply, obviously, to certainly to China and Russia. Yeah, Nicola, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll admit it's not a, an area I've looked at 
hugely, but but yes, we are aware, um, particularly within the region, um, of um, other countries. Um, Adopting um, legislation, there's specific examples, uh, for example, in Cambodia, um, partly, I think, because also, of, I mean, perhaps China's influence in the region, you know, obviously emboldens um, other countries um, uh, to introduce legislation, um, which previously um, they would not have done. And I think some of this has to be also be looked at in the context of kind of aid and sort of development relationships, um, where China is now um, a much more important uh, development actor um, in, in places like Cambodia, and where it's um, able to um, promote kind of forms of uh, sort of aid relationships which are substantively different from um, what was uh, being promoted by let's say kind of uh, sort of western aid agencies um so i know that i'm familiar with that being a huge issue we i mean another sort of aspect of that is also we are aware also of where the chinese authorities be it through the embassy but also you know as somehow or other also acting um in these other countries in the area particularly sort of so thailand cambodia for example where they are also on the lookout for chinese um chinese activists who may be active in um, and participating in events in those regions and darcy looking so it, it's complex but yes i think there is this um this sort of um shift and uh yeah a sort of more um that the uh, using these authorities sort of models um and a sense maybe that that the west has um you know the sort of em emphasis on good governments and uh, transparency and those sorts of uh, values is uh you know is less uh um less persuasive um i suppose sergey <laughs> have you got anything on that in relation to russia yeah i think um i mean russia um <clears throat> in a way has provided well, to some extent, I think um, there's obviously the parallels between some of the aspects of, uh, in terms of regulation in China and Russia, um, just in maybe not necessarily specifically in terms of how regulation is worded and passed, but in terms of the, uh, say, the, uh, the philosophy and the ideology behind it. And I know that at least Russian regulatory changes have inspired some changes in particular in, in, in its near neighborhoods. I mean, Belarus would be one uh, to think about. Even um, Ukrainian um, non-profit regulatory changes uh, to some extent under, you know, um, have had some sought some inspiration there despite you know, uh, generally not being see that the friend most friendly neighbor um the um, um the the kind of um central asian countries and some of the developments there um surprisingly some of uh, some of those um might have undergone a colored revolution changed that and then gone back to uh, copying some of the laws that have effectively restricted um some of the you know, the civil society that has actually led to the creation of those new regimes. So, I mean, um, it's interesting to see, and, and um, I'm not necessarily an a, a expert on the Central East Asian um, kind of countries like Turkmenistan and, and so on, um, but it's interesting to see how uh, 
civil society actors once you know they change the structures and then come into power might do the same that they've been rallying against mm-hmm. beforehand so um um yes not 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 necessarily everybody has got a a white kind of rest on i think the interesting bit to see and to think about is whether or not countries in what we would say develop the full democracies are seeking inspiration in terms of some of the uh, shrinking of spaces of of expression so um what comes to mind with here is is the um in the uk some changes to the way that um charities can provide opinions in lead up to uh, elections for example uh, and when and and how charities can present their opinions when they receive government funding um and i can see that there's at least not necessarily copying pasting but at least some potentially inspirational thought uh coming from the way that russia um might have uh, approached revenue controls uh, and requirements yes i might just add chip in here with a question i think for both of you i mean it, it, in china has um chinese government is very uh pleased about its handling of covid-19 which has of course at the same time benefited from this uh crackdown on the freedom of expression and organization in china and uh, perhaps sergey i i i'm not so sure about the situation in russia to to what extent um the russian government has been as successful in uh, curbing covid in russia and how that relates to civil society because the chinese situation could be used to justify justify um some degree of suppression of um debate and and challenge and accountability and so on i i i think um i mean um they're not in terms of curbing infections i don't think they've been that successful um but i think it, um they've also potentially haven't gone down the very strict route that china has gone down initially so um for covid for russia is is a is a double edged sword so it it has allowed the state to you know i live up to its its wildest kind of big brothers fantasies in terms of facial re- increasing facial recognition cameras i mean they've now the rights to geolocate individuals and track the banking data to make sure they stick to quarantine requirements um uh, and all that sort of uh, these sort of sides to it but at the same time um they seem to have struggled potentially to engage with some of these non-profit organizations that provide welfare services that they have um supported in the past to potentially engage with um groups that are trying to keep themselves under the radar from the state and the state agencies i think that that probably have they have struggled in in that pers- perspective i'm um, i'm not sure that putin as under putin administration would itself be patting itself on the back in terms of infection rates but despite these they are they're still in a way managing to somehow suppress some of the 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 potential civil disobedience and i think a lot of narrative around successful covid vaccines and and spreading these and developing these helps them to develop a a narrative that that them um, to some extent can whitewash some of these the the failures in actually controlling 
the spread, for example, or the, the infection, infection spread. Thank you. Nicola, you also raised your hand. Yes, I, th I think, I mean, perhaps just um, to, uh, to, to, to add to that, I, I think, yeah, clearly China has been successful um, in curbing its uh, infection rates and, and is, is now um, very busy in uh, promoting this success, both within China, but also internationally. It may be a bit early to, to, to sort of tell what impact this is having kind of internationally, partly because also there's a still, I think, quite a lot of anger about the early cover-ups um, that took place, um, again, because of the, the, the system and the control on, on information. Um, and I think, though, um, one of the interesting discussions and, and, and um, though around this um, and China's success is then also the success of Taiwan, um, which has also had extraordinary success in controlling infection rates. Um, in fact, even, you know, um, you know, dramatic success and has done so um, in a democratic context without all the authoritarian measures um, to, to the extent and certainly with 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 very much more of the kind of public consent um and so i think you know the, to some extent the kind of the lessons that um people draw from um you know the, the sort of governance models for managing covid um perhaps are sort of complicated and and we it's you know it'll be a bit how a bit too early to to see exactly how that plays out thank you um, I'm going to turn to the next question from um, Wajiha Khan. I'm not sure of the institute affiliation, but um, and this is about the social contract um, and people's search for breaking away from the many examples she gave about inequality so that people have some semblance of their rights restored. So question, do you think that the world, with the developing world in particular, um, will tilt further towards populist leaders, politics and rhetoric in a post-COVID era that gained momentum since 2015 and 16 or away from it? Marit. So obviously we've seen populist leaders and, and populist constituencies rise around the globe, not just in southern countries. We see them um, also gain a lot of votes in Europe. Um, um, and um, in other parts of the West. Um, I think there are a number of critical factors that will influence whether, um, the social, whether there will be an increased support for uh, uh, strong men who uh, have populist constituencies in the upcoming years. Um, first is the impact on livelihoods. This is a really critical one. If those that are populist leaders in power at the moment, um, if they, um, if the economy suffers dramatically and they're unable to provide um, any kind of social protection me measures, um, then um, it is likely that their populist base will shrink um, or, you know, will be reconfigured, they'll, they'll think again. Um, if, on the other hand, they weather the severe economic crises, um, then they are likely um, to support populist leaders because in many cases, like Brazil, for example, 
um, that leader said no to any kind of restrictions on mobility. We are out thinking about your bread and butter and so forth. And therefore, uh, they are likely to be strengthened. The second factor, and I think this is a global factor, um, is threats from non-state actors. If, for example, in the case of a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, um, if there are threats from ISIS, because ISIS has reconfigured tremendously during this last year. Um, ISIS, ISIS has been one of the winners of COVID-19 because as a lot of governments have focused on dealing with COVID-19, they've been able to um, rearm and reconfigure. If ISIS militias, non-state actors who engage in violent actions for, for, for getting what they want, if they increase in actions, then it is likely that people will um, seek a strongman, a savior who will uh, enforce very strict security measures. And therefore, that will obviously strengthen um, the populist constituency. Um, the third factor, I think, which is very important is um, um, what happens to health? I think this is a really critical issue. Um, what, what happens to the number of people who die? What happens to, uh, um, I mean, with COVID-19, we simply don't know what will end up being a lot of the unintended longer-term consequences of COVID on people's health. Um, and, and, that is, and that is quite significant because if people realize that um, the, the, the suffering is increasing, then they will resort to looking for useful enemies. Um, we see, for example, in India, which obviously the leader of which Modi has a very strong populist basis, he was mobilizing people to support, not to give up on him by informally, I wouldn't say it's him personally, but certainly the Hindutva, they were certainly um, implicated in the spread of the idea of the jihadi virus, accusing Muslims of spreading the spread of COVID-19. Um, this idea of looking for an enemy in the state of health crisis and paranoia will certainly increase the basis for populism. On the other hand, if this leads to increased violence and people wake up and say, do we really want to live with such vision and such disruption? And actually those kind of unintended consequences could lead people to move away from populism because nobody wants to live in a community where there's bloodshed every day. Or at least that's what we, we, we hope that that is the basis for um, rethinking um, support. Thank you. Um, as you have mentioned Modi in India, I'm going to take a question now from uh, Kishore Dere in Delhi, India, and I think this is probably uh, is for you all. Um, do you apprehend the death of civil society in the post-pandemic era? So if, if you want, one of you can raise your hand to, to take off on this question. Yep, Sergei. Is it death of civil society in post-COVID? Well, I think, um, I mean, if you if you look at the history of, of civil society and people mobilizing, if that is, let's say, an indicator of, of civil action, I think um, Maurice noted earlier that really what it comes down to or one of the issues is how do we define and what do we understand as civil society? What we see as civil society in the UK um, might not necessarily be what is effectively civil society in other contexts. So we might raise our eyebrows at um, 
random Russian biker gangs driving around supporting Putin and 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 chasing migrants. Um, but for that context, they are considered and classed legally as a civil society. So I think we need to, do, to in a way, distinguish between um, you know uh, kind of the the legal recognition of oh yes, we these are legally recognised as non profits, so technically they're civil society, as in from a legislative standpoint. But are they really civil society in terms of? let's say, the ideological in, and philosophical foundations of how the concept of civil society has been thought about and, and uh, going back to some of the early Enlightenment thinkers and so on. Um, in a way, there's two, two discussions. One is kind of a th philosophical, theoretical discussion. Um, and potentially, if you know, um, everything is very regulated and there's no freedom of expression, then... Yes, from a philosophical standpoint, maybe we don't we see the slow death. I wouldn't necessarily um, see it dying quickly, um, the slow death of civil society. But if we kind of looking from a legislative standpoint, then um, I would assume, and if, uh, if I'm looking at the Russian context, at kind of the Soviet Union, at the, in a way, the Tsarist regime before the Soviet Union, they've always been these sort of non-state actors, you know, some quite often closely controlled by the state or closely regulated by the state, to provide some sort of outlet for mobilization or for citizens' engagement. Um, it's whether or not that is kind of voluntary, is in the sense that people do that because they want to, or whether people volunteer because they have to. I mean, the Soviet Union was famed for having kind of loads of volunteers, but if you didn't volunteer, then you would end up in Siberia at some point. So it wasn't really volunteering in in the sense that you know, you, you 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 do um, nowadays in Russia as well as in 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 the UK. So from some perspective, yes, we we have a fairly negative kind of a pessimistic um, understanding, and COVID probably doesn't help. Um, because there are, it seems to be the sort of shrinking of spaces. Uh, from another perspective, if you look historically, um, even in authoritarian contexts that used to be very authoritarian contexts such as Russia, um, loads of things have changed for the positives. I and mean, for one thing, nonprofits can operate as non independent organizations. Whether or not they can do what they want is a different question. Um, and people can choose not to volunteer, which itself is a very important choice they can make. Um, so, from that perspective, I think um, there will be some sort of civil society that emerges and survives, just because you know people are adaptive to to the forces that come onto them and are innovative in a way of of dealing with them. Thank you, um, Nicola. Yep. Um, yeah, just to add it, perhaps briefly, a couple of points. Um, I mean, obviously, in China, um, what civil society exists is, to a large extent, what is permitted by the party. And so it is very constrained. Um, within that, and um, I would just sort of observe, I think, one kind of more negative development and one, you know, sort of for concern in, in terms of going forward. And, and it's not just in relation to it's not really specific at all in relation to COVID, but but more, I think, um, at the where the party is at the moment and it's um, it's intentions and that is perhaps a younger generation in China many of them less sort of um, 
enthusiastic of sort of about mobilizing and joining in and, and being critical of the state. There sort of seems to be perhaps kind of more association of their interests with, with the state and the, and, and the projection of kind of China's successes and so forth. Um, and so sort of certainly talking to some of the slightly more, you know, sort of older activists who, who grew, who sort of a, a became active in that sort of easier period, let's say, of the, the, the sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Um, there is a bit of a generational gap with the younger generation who seem um, much less willing to, to, to um, get involved in, in um, activities which might in any sense be, be seen to be kind of critical. Um, and then the other thing I would just say, though, is, of course, you know, I don't, is events and the impact of events. I mean, we saw huge kind of growth of of volunteering and genuine volunteering and activism um, after the Sichuan earthquake in in, in two thousand eight, and also in the early stages of of, of the COVID um, crisis in Wuhan, where there was a lot of um, activism, um, people volunteering, donating supplies, traveling to Wuhan, um, and and wanting to be involved. Um, so. Uh, no, I'm a little bit more, I suppose, um, optimistic that uh, there is somehow or other somewhere a, a kind of human desire to, to, to kind of to, to have your voice, to, 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 to get involved, I suppose, at some level. And, and I think the government um, kind of knows that. Um, so but where are the where do they draw the, the limits in terms of also their own interests? Great. Thank you. And Marie, so I think that will probably be our last answer and question. Yeah. So I'll be very brief then. Um, I think just to build on what uh, Sergey and, 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 and Nicholas say, I think there are three things. Yes, COVID-19 has, has presented the world with, with incredible challenges and in how people physically organize. Um, and if we go back to Charles Tilly and Taro and McAdam and their work on contentious politics, the idea of um, the manifestation of civil society is in the performativities, that it is you're on the street or you're on in a certain place doing certain things. And the importance of that for both gaining more people to, to, um, to work with you, but also getting uh, people to relate to your cause. But I think, um, I don't think we will see a death um, of civil society, even with all the challenges, on three accounts. I think the first is, like Sergey says, it all depends on what you mean by civil society. So people will always find unconventional and ingenuous ways of coalescing around issues that are important for them, even if they don't follow the ways in which we think they will express themselves in. So rest assured, restrictions may happen, circumscribing of space may happen, but people will always find ingenuous ways of still pushing the boundaries somehow or other, working below the radar uh, somehow. Um, the second reason why I don't think there will be a death of civil society is um, young people are... Um, are maybe not using the same pathways of civil society organizing that have conventionally we've conventionally seen in the 20th century. Um, you know, um, um, a lot more of the organized forms, trade unions, uh, social movements, non-governmental organizations, um, and so forth, non-private associations, and so forth. But they are finding ways of collectively expressing themselves. Um, and I'm not going to ever romanticize the online sphere because we know that that sphere has been used for all kinds of very um, uncivil purposes. Um, we just think of all the, the hate speech that has happened through young people organizing in, in the online sphere. 
But on the other hand, we've also seen um, incredible efforts at accountability. And I just want to share very quickly one example of that is um, a few months ago um, in the American University in Cairo, um, they recognized that there's been a young man, a student who's a sexual predator who has been blackmailing a lot of women um, and has been engaging in massive forms of sexual assault. Um, and uh, young women organized and they formed a platform and they collected the evidence and they forced basically the, um, uh, through their work, the media to take them seriously. And as a consequence, the, the general prosecutor is now looking into, he's detained the young man and is looking into um, the, the, well, detained him and is taking it. And they're basically seeking to go from a case of accountability of one person to how do they create movements for broader forms of sexual assault. Um, so that's the second reason, which is different, uh, young people using different means. The thirdly is, um, very, very quickly, is um, even though COVID-19 has created restrictions in civic space, people have also, as a consequence of civic, of, of the, 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 the sort of the, the impact of COVID-19, they have also gotten together, just like Sergey and Nicola pointed out, in cases of solidarity, in crises, people do get together. And with COVID-19, we've, we've also seen organic forms of solidarity. Um, and um, it may be that they form to create solidarity, to confront the economic and social impacts of COVID-19. But then that snowballs into something more political. And, and then a greater cause for accountability may emerge. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I think we have now only a few minutes left, so I'm going to have to draw the session to a close. And I would like to thank our speakers for a very informative um, event, and um, um, it, which has raised a lot of issues around authoritarianism, COVID, and indeed liberal democracies. I'd also like to thank the audience as well for giving your time to participate and for your questions, not all of which we could answer, and also the technical staff involved. Um, I'm sure there are many of them, but let me just mention Alan Revel, Antigone Bulugari and Deepa Patel. So thank you very much everyone for coming and I hope this has um, provoked um, more ideas and more thinking and hope, hopefully also celebrated the importance of civil society as it is now increasingly under threat um, in countries all over the world. So thank you very much, everyone. This hopefully will be a podcast if you would like to look at it again in more detail. And apologies if we couldn't address all of the questions that were asked today. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>